blocking the flow of food, of potable water, is plunging people deeper into misery. It's having the opposite effect of what he claims his actions are meant to do. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On October 21st, the United Nations Security Council imposed sanctions on Jimmy Cherizier, a former police officer turned gang leader in Haiti. For the last several weeks, the coalition of gangs headed by Cherizier, known as the G9 Friends and Allies, have imposed a blockade on the main fuel terminal in Haiti. Protesters have taken to the streets after dozens of people were killed in a week of gang violence, insecurity and unrest. The United Nations Security Council is sanctioning Haitian gang leaders. It comes as the international community pushes to bring an end to surging violence in the crisis-hit Caribbean country. The UN Security Council now targeting gang leaders and their supporters considering travel bans and arms embargoes on anyone threatening the peace, security, or stability of Haiti. Fuel is now getting scarcer by the day, with prices surging to over $20 a gallon. This is exacerbating an already dire humanitarian situation, with parts of Port-au-Prince experiencing what the United Nations has deemed catastrophic food insecurity. Meanwhile, amidst the chaos and fighting, a new cholera outbreak is sweeping through neighborhoods. My guest today, Jacqueline Charles, is the Caribbean correspondent for the Miami Herald and a longtime reporter covering Haiti. We kick off discussing the biography of Jimmy Cherizier before having a longer conversation about Haiti's recent gang wars and the relationship between gang violence and political power in Haiti. Just a quick note before we start, please recommend the podcast to friends and colleagues. You will not hear such an in-depth conversation about the current crisis in Haiti anywhere else in the podcast sphere, at least with a kind of nuance and expertise that Jacqueline Charles brings to the conversation. And this is something I aspire to do twice a week, every week with Global Dispatches, and I've been doing it for a very long time. So if you're already a subscriber, please rate and review the show. If not, hit the subscribe button to get this podcast delivered to you as soon as new episodes are released. Now here is my conversation with Jacqueline Charles of the Miami Herald. Jimmy Cherizier, who is better known as Barbecue, is a former Haitian National Police officer turned gang leader. I'm told that, you know, the nickname Barbecue has to do with 
that they basically would barbecue people, burn them. He basically is the front man for a very powerful gang known as the G9 families and allies. And I say front man because he's the guy that we hear a lot from. You know, he's very articulate. There's a certain charisma to him. He gives a lot of media interviews, I've seen. Exactly. He's got, he's media savvy. You know, you could tell that, you know, he's not just some schmuck off the streets. And, you know, in a country where the state is essentially non-existent and gangs have stepped into the vacuum, he is popular in a very weird sort of way. I don't think that there's anybody in Haiti today who doesn't know who Barbecue is. But when you listen to him, you know, he will tell you, for instance, this is a revolution and, and I'm doing this because we want to have health care. We want to lift people out of poverty. We are fighting for another society, another Haiti, that is not only for the 5% of the people who keep all the wealth, but a new Haiti, where everyone can have food, clean water, so they can have a decent house to live in. Another Haiti where we don't have to leave the country. But they're using fiery barricades to block access in and out of the country's main field terminal, one would argue that this very act of blocking the flow of fuel, blocking the flow of food, of potable water, is plunging people deeper into misery. It's having the opposite effect of what he claims his actions are meant to do. So how did he go from a police officer to gang leader to want to be revolutionary? What we do know in terms of police in Haiti is that there is an issue of corruption inside the police force. It's not difficult for somebody to go from police officer to gang leader. We've heard lots of reports in terms of the police is infiltrated by a number of officers who are involved with gangs. We've heard reports that when Jimmy Sherizier moves, he moves with police officers, that he is aware of the police moves. There have been attempts to arrest him, attempts to take him out, and he always seems to be one step ahead of everybody else. So Jimmy Sherizier became the first individual in about five years to have sanctions slapped on him by the UN Security Council, which voted unanimously to issue a travel ban and an asset freeze. Why is the Security Council suddenly focused on him as an individual? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question because, you know, a lot of Haitians who had a lot of high hopes for these sanctions that were coming out of the United Nations were really expecting to have a list, right, of individuals that the UN would announce that they were now sanctioning because they were involved in in gang activities or destabilizing Haiti. But instead, what we saw was that in this resolution that was passed, there was an annex, and in the annex, Jimmy Sherizia has been highlighted. The Security Council hasn't really, you know, explained why of all the individuals they decided to highlight him. If I were to make an educated guess, I would say that Jimmy Sherizia was also sanctioned by the United States back in 2020 in connection to the 2018 massacre in a working class neighborhood of Port-au-Prince called La Saline. Dozens of people were killed in that massacre. At the time, two other Haitian government officials who were working for President Jovenel Moïse, they were also implicated and also sanctioned. 
in that massacre. And so there were investigations. Investigations were done by a local human rights organization in Haiti, as well as by the UN itself. You would follow the Security Council updates on the situation in Haiti, and you would hear, I remember the ambassador to France saying, why hasn't Jimmy Chirizier been arrested? They were well aware of the La Saline incident. So if we were to consider that in the decision now in terms of announcing sanctions, he has become emblematic of what the Security Council, the reasons for them taking this direction in terms of sanctions. I think there's a recognition in the part of the international community that the security situation in Haiti is not improving. It's getting worse. They wanted to send some sort of a clear message or get some sort of a mechanism in place that they can begin to crack down on gang leaders, but also individuals who are financing them and who are arming them. But there was disappointment, I can tell you, among people who follow Haiti closely, that of all the individuals, that this particular person who's only highlighted and that there wasn't a list of other individuals. Yeah, it usually is the case that when the Security Council passes a sanctions resolution, there's an annex and the annex contains like a bunch of names, but this was the only name. I want you to take listeners back to this summer when gang violence seemed to sharply escalate. Jimmy Cherizier, you said, is the leader of the G9 Friends and Allies coalition of armed groups of, of gangs. And they apparently launched an offensive this summer. Can you explain what happened and why gang violence escalated so sharply over the past several months? So actually, before this summer incident involving the G9, we also saw a massacre that happened in the eastern part of Port-au-Prince involving a couple of different gangs. And it was in areas called Guadamission and Guadabouquet and Tabar. And Tabar is significant because it's where the international airport is located, but it's also where the United States Embassy in Port-au-Prince is also located. It's actually in Tabar. And this gang violence broke out, ironically enough, after the arrest of another powerful gang leader, Yon-Yon, who was actually in prison in the National Penitentiary. So the United States basically brought him here to the U.S. to stand charges on kidnapping in relation to the abduction of 16 Americans who were kidnapped. They were among a total of 17 missionaries who were kidnapped a year ago, October. And so the U.S., interesting enough, will say when we arrested Yon-Yon and brought him here, that sent a clear message to the gangs on how serious we are. And I always counter that by saying, no, after the arrest of Yon-Yon, the situation with Katsa Maozo, which is the gang that he headed from prison and controlled from prison, it didn't improve. It actually got worse because we saw a bloody gang war that went on for weeks on end in the eastern part of the capital. So that took place around April and May. And then after that, we saw this situation in Cité Soleil, which is the largest slum in the Haitian capital in Port-au-Prince. And according to people that I interview and spoke to, what they said was that Jimmy Cherizier's gang, G9 Family and Allies, attacked another gang coalition inside Cité Soleil that's known as GPEP. So it was 
position as kind of a gang war, turf war. But according to the UN, there were over 470 individuals who were killed or injured or have gone missing as a result of the vicious clash between these two gangs. And another thing that happened that people weren't paying attention to, but we're now starting to see the results of that, was the lack of potable water. Because mm-hmm. of the gang fighting, you could not get humanitarian aid inside Cité Soleil in this particular neighborhood called Brooklyn, where the attack took place. Water trucks could not deliver water. They stopped delivering water. Garbage trucks stopped going in to try to collect garbage. So people literally have been living on top of filth and drinking soiled water. And then this month, what did we see? We saw that the first cases of cholera that were reported in Haiti after more than three years were confirmed out of the Brooklyn neighborhood, the very neighborhood where this gang attack took place in July. And you wrote an article just today, and we're speaking Tuesday, October 25th, in the Miami Herald about the toll that this cholera epidemic, which is you know sourced to this neighborhood in Port-au-Prince that's inaccessible to water trucks and sanitation is having just a devastating effect on children right now. Yes, UNICEF says that a half of the cholera cases that are suspected are children under the age of 14 years old. And we're talking just about the capital because the reality is, is that eight groups, including, you know, UN organizations have not really been able to get access outside of Port-au-Prince because of the gang violence, because of gangs blocking roads, because of these sporadic protests, because of looting and attacks that have happened on UN warehouses, including WFP. And so, you know, a lot of the focus has been on Port-au-Prince, but I've been hearing reports from people about possible cholera in their communities. So meanwhile, exacerbating the situation is the fact that G9, Jimmy Cherizier's group, is essentially blockading the key fuel port in Haiti. Are they making like political demands on Prime Minister Ariel Henry? Do they seek the resignation or the ouster somehow of Ariel Henry? And what's the sort of connection to politics of this all. Yes. So he has basically demanded that Henri needs to resign. We've heard other politicians say that, you know, once Henri resigns, that the viral fuel terminal will be on block. I mean, what's been clear in this is that people have definitely been trying to take advantage of this for their own needs. You know, the question is, is Sherizia acting on his own or is he a stand-in for others? Is he a stand-in for other individuals who have been trying to get the removal of Ariel Henry? You know, I think it's no secret to anyone in Haiti that there are various groups, different groups that would like to see this prime minister removed. He wasn't elected to be put there. We've heard from individuals who say, hey, this country needs to go undergo a two-year transition. It needs to be led by a group of civil society members. You've heard the international community say that economic interests have basically penetrated these protests that are based on real frustrations, but seeking to take advantage of it because they're not happy at the fact that the government not only wants to get rid of the fuel subsidies, but at the same time, the government has been cracking down 
on you know a minimum of six hundred million dollars in uncollected custom duties at the ports. I mean, there are very powerful individuals who basically have been importing products but not paying the true value of those taxes, and as a result, Haiti loses about six hundred million dollars minimum in uncollected duties. And why is that important? This is a country of 12 million people. Its budget is basically $2 billion a year. It receives more money out of the diaspora of three plus billion dollars, which it really needs, but it's throwing a billion dollars away in fuel and in uncollected port taxes. So do you like see any connection between the circumstances in which Ariel Henry became prime minister and the current crisis that Haiti is in today? So a lot of people, you know, may just be coming to this Haiti crisis or crises post the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise a year ago in July of 2021. But prior to his assassination, President Jovenel Moise was the target of a lot of anti-government protests, demands for his ouster, questions about when his mandate as president actually ended. Opposition groups, you know, legal scholars were saying that it was February 7th, 2021. The United States and others said, no, it's February 7th, 2022. And so there was a Organization of American States delegation that went down to Haiti to meet with President Jovenel Moise and basically said, look, we need to take this country to elections because President Moise was under one-man rule, meaning there was not a functioning parliament in Haiti, and he was it. The buck stopped with him, which led to some people saying that he was trying to become Latin America's next dictator because he was passing these new laws by executive degree. Like he created this, you know, secret intelligence agency similar to a CIA, but even worse, um, again, under presidential order. And so as a result of the pressure that he was getting from the U.S. and others in his hemisphere, he tapped Ariel Henry to be his next prime minister. At the time, he had an acting prime minister, Claude Joseph, who was also the minister of foreign affairs, but he tapped Ariel Henry, who was a neurosurgeon, previously served as chief of cabinet in the Ministry of Health under the late President René Preval, ironically, when cholera first broke out. But Henri was more remembered by a lot of people as having been interior minister and the head of social services ministry under President Michel Martelly, who was the predecessor to Jovenel Moise and who basically essentially tapped Jovenel Moise to follow me as president. So that made Henri controversial in a sense because people could not separate him or would not separate him from former President Michel Martelly or his political party known as PHTK. So while he may have been tapped by Jovenel in response to the OAS saying, we need you to get somebody that's not on your team, that's not in your political circle, you know, someone who can gather people around a table because they have different political hues. Not everybody saw that with Henri. They disregarded the fact that he may have been a social Democrat and he's belonged to several different political parties through the decades. But his nomination as prime minister was not made public right away. And I think a lot of people did not realize that, that he was tapped by Jovenel Moise way before Jovenel Moise was killed, but it didn't come to light until just days before the president was assassinated. So Jovenel Moise is killed in the middle of the night in a brazen attack on the 7th of July. And there is a power struggle between the acting prime minister, Claude Joseph, who's there, 
And Ariel Henry, who is the prime minister designate, but hadn't been sworn in before President Moise's death. And so there are these meetings that are going back and forth about this. It was a very awkward moment, right? In time, it was there was a lot of things that weren't clear. A president has been killed. You know, is this country going to be taken over by gangs? We're under martial law. Who's in charge? All of these things were happening. And then at the end of that, Ariel Henry is the one who emerges as the prime minister because this was the choice that this president made prior to him being killed under pressure by the international community that has insisted that he was still president at the time of his death, contrary to what other people were arguing. And so you have people clearly who did not agree with that, who still do not agree with that. And as a result of this, what you find is Ariel Henry today is not elected, does not have a president in Haiti. There is not a functioning parliament. And there's these questions about what's next for Haiti? You know, should it go under a longer transition? Does it need to go to elections? The international community led by the U.S. and the U.N. has been saying, well, you guys need to have a Haitian solution, put your heads together, come up with a governance plan for moving this country forward and to getting the country to elections. And so far, we have not seen that happen. Given like the current crisis that Haiti is under and also the political sort of chaos of the last year. What does this moment tell you about the relationship between gangs, political power, and wealth in Haiti? I think what this moment tells you, it's not about gangs, political power, and wealth in Haiti. What it tells you is what happens when you don't have institutions in a country, when you don't have strong institutions, when you don't have a strong government that's in the country, when you have a weak police force. I mean, the police, you know, not for lack of trying, have been trying to take back control of these key infrastructures from the gangs, but they haven't been able to. Why? They're not just because they're 12,000 individuals, they're ill-equipped. The gangs have automatic weapons and the police have pistols. They have nine millimeters. You know, they don't even have bulletproof vests in some cases. If they do, they don't have plates in their bulletproof vests. I mean, let's not fool ourselves. This is a country that is under a U.S. arms embargo. So while weapons and ammunition are flowing freely into Haiti illegally and ending up in the hands of gangs, the police, they don't have access to this. I always point out to this incident that happened where you had five police officers who went into an armored vehicle into a slum in Port-au-Prince called Village de Dieu, the Village of God, and it's better known as a kidnapping lair. So a complete maze in there. Well, their bodies still have never been retrieved out of there. They were ambushed when they were in there. So this is the reality that you have. And so when Jovenel Moïse was president, there was still a gang problem. There was still a kidnapping problem. When I talk to people on the ground in terms of the international community, you know, what they confide in me is the fact that what keeps them up late at night is that every day these gangs are increasingly becoming free agents. You know, Mm -hmm. so we've talked about the collusion of politicians with gangs and, and who may be pulling the strings of this gang or that gang. But what you are increasingly seeing when you follow this issue is that 
gangs that previously were not in communication with each other, they are in communication with each other. When somebody gets kidnapped today, it doesn't necessarily mean that that gang is holding them in their lair. They could be held by another gang that's in another part of the capital. So you're starting to see these larger coalitions built and you're starting to see gangs acting on their own. So at some point, are we going to reach a point in this country where you can't just like pick up a phone and call a politician and say, hey, I know you're close to this gang and there's a problem and I need you to you know, release this person or release this blockade. I think that is the fear and the reality that the Haitian National Police, which was put in charge of the security of this country, today needs help. Who should help and how that helps should look like? Well, that's the current debate. Well, I wanted to ask you about that debate. You know, given the deteriorating security situation you just described and the escalating humanitarian crisis caused by lack of access to water and sharply increased fuel crisis, there has been calls and some movement for some sort of international intervention in Haiti. I know the United States and Mexico have been circulating this idea at the UN Security Council. International intervention has a, a very sort of problematic history in Haiti. What are you hearing from the Haitians you are speaking to about the prospect of some sort of like international presence in Haiti? And how realistic is that as an actual option that might ameliorate the situation to a degree? So is it international intervention or is it assistance for the police? Because let me take a step back. There's a country called Jamaica that is not far from Haiti and it has a gang problem. And you have the Jamaican military that they run anti-gang operations with the Jamaican Defense Forces, their official name, but they are the military aspect and they run anti-gang operations with the Jamaican police all of the time. When you look at what's being proposed and what's being requested, this is exactly what the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez is requesting. The way that this has been played by different groups, because it is a very sensitive topic, right, is that it's international intervention or it's international invasion. Let's go back in history. Haiti had an army. That army at the request and the push by the United States was dismantled. Under Martelly and Jovenel Moise, they resuscitated it. But the army, if, if the police is ill-equipped, the army is almost non-existent. I mean, you have a couple of guys and they're there, but they're really not equipped at all. And so where is that help going to be? So the Haitian government in place has asked for a specialized rapid reaction force to come in and to assist the police. U.S. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez has put forth a proposal supporting that as well as what do we do after? What Here are the options, the security options. I think that there's a recognition today on the part of the international community that the Haitian police still needs assistance. That when the U.N. pulled out of Haiti and this idea that people were arguing that the HMP the Haitian National Police could take care of the security problems of this country. Today, there's this real realization that they are not there yet. And so the UN has a basket fund that has been set up, I think, requesting $28 million. It only has 11 million. Of, 1 million came from the Haitian government itself. Other 10 came from Canada. Maybe it's 14, but I think the US gave 3 million. But the reality is, is that it's been slow in terms of getting 
you know, other countries in the international community to step up and to provide that financial assistance. And now the U.S. has a resolution where it is supporting this idea of deploying a rapid reaction force to Haiti to go with the Haitian National Police. They will be the frontline entity, but to take back the seaport, the fuel terminal, key access roads, you know, to get some sort of measure of stability there so you can get fuel and food and water flowing again in that country. But it's just a Band-Aid. It's a temporary because then the question becomes, what do you put in place so that the next time you have these gangs stepping into this political vacuum, the police is able to respond, the state is able to respond. In the coming weeks, you know, as this situation is poised to deteriorate even further on the security and, and humanitarian front, like, are, are there any trends or, or inflection points or anything in particular you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how the situation might unfold? The inflection point, what I'll be looking for as a reporter is the situation in Haiti right now, it's dire. We are in week seven of this gang blockade. So how worse does it get? What is the concern with the cholera? You know, does it spread beyond suspected cases to confirmed cases to confirmed deaths? And I think for Haiti's regional neighbors, does Haiti increasingly or actually becomes more of a regional security threat? I mean, that is the concern, is that, you know, the spillover of Haiti's multiple multidimensional crises. Today, we are in the largest boat migration crisis of Haitian refugees trying to get to the United States since 2004. Over 7,000 have made that journey. Some have died along the way. Most of them have been returned back to Haiti. Are there going to be more people risking their lives once fuel, you know, maybe gets available? And do we start seeing this exporting of the gang violence elsewhere in the region? That's the concern, too, when you talk to members of CARICOM. It's the concern that this will no longer just be confined to Haiti or the island of Hispaniola. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.